Amen. Hey, this morning we are in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 through 24. Galatians 5, 22 through 24. If you don't have a Bible, you should find one in the back of the pew in front of you. We'd love for that to be a gift from us to you. If you're not familiar with how to use that, there's a table of contents at the front. It's going to let you know how to find the book of Galatians. The large numbers are chapters, and the small numbers are verses. Again, we're in Galatians 5, 22 through 24 this morning. Now, last week, we took a look at the passage just immediately before that, and in 5, 19 through 21, Paul had gone in and he listed uh, 15 different vices, 15 different items, he refers to them as the works of the flesh, he says these come from the desire of the flesh, and and we looked at those things and we recognized many of us, uh, some of the parts of this list are evident, they're seen in our lives, and we see that, we don't like that in us, and Paul talks about how to overcome that, how to defeat that. Now essentially what he does in this is he turns, he says you have the works, you have the desire of the flesh, and that this is the fruit of the Spirit. This is the fruit of the Spirit. So we see how he's, he's not balancing quite, but he's pivoting and he's turning to the positive demonstration of what it looks like. Probably about 1994 or so, my family moved from Stavanger, Norway, where I attended a really tiny private school, to Lafayette, Louisiana, where I attended a, a large public school. I went from a class size of around 14 or so to a class size of around 800. And I had never gone to school in America before. I'd never lived that far south before. And when my mom and I went in and we met with a school counselor, he started talking about the dress code and like, you, you have to do this and you can't have, you can't have anything on your t-shirt, you got to wear polos, you have to wear jeans, and really just des- describe this really strict dress code. No, my school overseas, no dress code. You could wear a ball cap in class, you could wear whatever you wanted to wear. It was cold almost always, so you always had to dress warm. You could wear all, anything you wanted to wear. So I had to go buy clothes shopping, or my mom had to go clothes shopping for me, right? And so she said, what do you want? I said, I think really baggy jeans are in. I want baggy jeans, and and then I guess whatever shirt this guy's talking about. She's like, okay, I'll go take care of it for you. So she goes out, and she buys me just a ton of polos. I mean, like a polo in every color, pattern, and whatever. I owned it, all but paisley. Nobody wants that. And so she goes in, she gets that, and she gets me these jeans that I look at, I'm like, these are the coolest jeans ever. They were so incredibly baggy. Now, full disclosure, I've never worn baggy jeans before, but I knew they were going to be cool. First day of school rolls around, it's like 120 degrees, 400% humidity. The state bird, the mosquito, is flying large. And at this particular school, they wouldn't let you in for security reasons until the bell rang. They had to do a bomb sweep. Nothing makes you feel like you're safe, like a good bomb sweep, right? I think that's just something they told kids from out of town. Anyway, so I'm out there, and I'm sweating in places I didn't know I could sweat. They call it the swamp sweat. And so I'm there, and I've got these jeans, and, and they're, they're low. I mean, they're so baggy, and... And I begin to walk to class, and these jeans start sticking to my legs. And I'm like, oh, this is, this, is, this, is, this is a mite uncomfortable. And by the end of the day, I am so incredibly raw because these super baggy jeans had just caused all kinds of chafing in my legs. I think I looked cool. But I was in so much pain that I went home, and my mom said, how was it? And I send the baggy jeans back. 
and nobody at this school wears a polo. I don't know what that guy was talking about. Everybody has nothing but t-shirts on. So what I wanted to do in, in, in that place is I wanted to dress the part. I wanted to fit and I wanted people to walk up and see me and say, oh, did you go to, to Broussard Junior High School? And I'd be like, no, I went to the International School Stavanger Norway Middle School. Where did you go? And they're like, oh, I don't want to talk to you. I don't want to be friends with you. I wanted to look the part. I wanted to dress like everybody else was dressing. And all that really got me was sore legs. I looked saddle sore for the next three days. They thought I was a member of a dance troupe. And that, that, you can't live that down. What Paul has, has given us in those 15 are these list of vices that should have no place in our heart. They should have no place in our character. They should have no place, frankly, in our church. And what he gives us in the fruit of the Spirit is the description of what we should experience when we come to church. It's a description of what we should experience when we encounter another brother or sister in Christ. You walk up to somebody and they say, man, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. What we should see in them or the fruit of the Spirit spill over in their lives, and we should encounter them in this way. And this is essentially what Paul gives us. Now, it is of terrific encouragement to us. But some of the ways that you and I come into this, we come into this list and we know it because we've learned songs about it, we've learned all these things if you've grown up in the church, and we look at our lives through the lens of the 15, and we say, I, I don't have the nine. I don't have these the characteristics of the fruit of the Spirit in my life, and we take this as evidence that we are far from the Lord, and we take this as evidence that we're failing. But I want you to read something carefully with me. Look at verse 22. He says, but the fruit of the, everybody say Spirit. But the fruit of the, say Spirit again. He says it's the fruit of the Spirit. He doesn't say it's your fruit. Why is this important? You see, this is critically important because if you go through life with the understanding that you look at your life through this mirror, through this lens of Scripture, and you say, I don't have love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, or self-control. I don't have these things in my life. All I see is struggle. And you point at deficiency in you, and, you, and, and, and you, le- you lead yourself to believe what everybody else says about you. You're not a particularly patient person. You're not a particularly loving person. You're not a particularly kind person then you come away with this understanding that it is a deficiency in you that is showing through, that is shining through. But what does he say? It is the fruit of the Spirit. So incredibly important. Galatians at its heart isn't so much a push against the pressures of legalism, but it is a push to the embracing of God's Holy Spirit. And that leads us to push away legalism. He says the fruit of the Spirit is, and then he gives us the list of the nine. Back in Galatians chapter 4 in verse 6, he says, Because you are sons and because you are daughters, God has sent his Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And we talked about this a few weeks ago, that if you're a follower and believer of of Jesus Christ, If you have said, I believe that God sent his son, he died for my sins, that he rose again, and I am united to him through faith, and this faith tether, not on the basis of good things I've done, but on the basis of his son's atoning death. If this is true of you, then his spirit is inside you, always testifying over and over and over again, he's mine, she's mine. In essence, when we find ourselves in sin, you find yourself lying, you find yourself moving towards adultery, you find yourself in whatever sin, whatever habit, whatever way of these 15 vices, the Holy Spirit says to the Lord, he's yours. He's yours. 
And so what we spend our time doing is submitting ourselves to the truth of that reality. So when we read in this that it is the fruit of the Spirit, what we are hearing is that these are the characteristics that the Spirit longs to see evident in your life through His powerful manifestation. Do you see the difference? On the one hand, you go to somebody and you say, hey, listen. Like, I know that you were spiritually dead, that you were lost, that you were adrift, that you were blind, that you followed your own passions. But what I need you to now is get your stuff together, and I need you to show some love. What I need you to do is get your stuff together to show some patience. What I need you to do is get your stuff together and to be kind and to be good and to be all of these things. In fact, to be perfect. It's overwhelming. And what it does in the middle of that is it reminds us of our supreme ability to be anything other than those things. In fact, what we do, we find ourselves in the middle of those flashing back to the 15 sins listed there. And we say, I am a liar. I am envious. I am all the things that God's word says I shouldn't be. And I'm none of the things his word says I should be. See, but that's not how our God works. That's not what our God is doing. You see, he has saved you, he has ransomed you, he has pulled you up from the death. He has made your blind eyes to see, he's made your dead heart to beat. He has caused your decaying, rotting flesh to come alive in him. And in coming alive to him, he has placed his Holy Spirit inside of you so that when you're doing the things you shouldn't do, his Holy Spirit looks to God the Father and he says, he is yours. And what he longs to see as a loving father is not the recrimination and and, and the accusations of the enemy resound in your heart. But what he longs to see is in the middle of sin and the waywardness in this path we follow is you. Listen to the truth and the reality of what he says in you. The fruit is what he's calling you to. And the fruit is how he's outfitting you. He says the fruit of the spirit is, and he begins it with the idea of love. Now in 1 Corinthians 13, 13, the Apostle Paul says, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is, everybody say, love. In fact, we recognize that even in the book of Galatians, when Paul was going through and he's describing the, the, the burden of the law. He said, it's for freedom that you are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity through the flesh, but through, everybody say, love. But through love serve one another. For the whole law, verse 14, is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So we recognize that likely what Paul is doing is governing this list of nine characteristics with this description of love. This understanding that that if we are to give ourselves to a radical love of God and love of others, that we will not see the 15 characteristics of the flesh visited in our lives or in our church. See, Rice, and he says, Do you have love? And the Holy Spirit longs for you to show love in your life. And so when he takes up residence in your heart, he dresses you, he outfits you in love. And that love has an opportunity to be shown, to be displayed, to be engaged each and every opportunity we speak with someone else or reflect upon ourselves. He says the fruit of the Spirit longs for you to have an experience of love in your life. He says the fruit of the Spirit is joy. And joy is this understanding that that we live in in the midst of a time and a group of people and a culture that delights in experiencing joy. 
But it has so diluted, it has so perverted, it has so twisted and corrupted the idea of joy that it has co-opted and led us to believe that joy hinges on our expressed delight in something. Right? So something is more delightful, something is more enjoyable, then we recognize that this is what I long for. This is what I long for and this is what I'm made for. The fact that I want to be happy. I want to have positive experiences. I don't want somebody diminishing my joy by saying, I can't do this, I can't do that. I can't be this, I can't be that. And so I live my life in a pursuit of joy and delight in me. So in that description, in that manifestation, in that hope of wanting to see joy, joy is what I see it as. Now for the Christian joy, the Christian joy is decidedly different. You see, the Christian has an opportunity to tap into joy and an experience of joy in the midst of terrific hardship, in the midst of oppression, in the midst of, in the midst of difficulty. And why is that so? Is it because we're particularly self-effacing people? Oh, that's not been my experience. Is it because as a group of people that we're just, I don't know, what, do you, what would you say in this? Stuff just rolls off our back? Ooh, the last couple of years hasn't shown that to be true. Like we walk around with our hackles up nonstop. Where does the Christian's joy come from? It comes from his spirit. And we begin to get the understanding and the picture that all of these characteristics and their manifestation in our lives depends on the, the degree to which we are attuned in step with God's Holy Spirit. You see, this idea of Christian joy allows us to have an experience of joy even while we suffer from anxiety, even while we struggle with depression, even while we lose our family members, even while there's terrific uncertainty about the events of our future and the events of our day. He allows us to experience joy, not the cessation of difficulty, but a transcendent joy that allows us to rest in the next word, which is his peace. Peace is not this absence of turmoil. It's not the idea that, well, it's just everything is great in my life. I've got enough money. I've got enough health. I've got enough stability. I have enough free time to use my health, to use my money, and to use my stability. But the idea of peace is resting in God's provision and trusting in God's character. And the peace that he brings us to our lives is a peace that envelops us. It is a whole life peace. This Old Testament idea of shalom, that when God sent his people into Babylon, that Jeremiah is able to write to them and to say, even there, even in turmoil, even in slavery, even in the loss of your freedom in this place, God's freedom and his peace is on offer for your express enjoyment and experience today. So we begin to have this understanding that it doesn't matter what our government does. It doesn't matter what our companies do. It doesn't matter what happens to our health. Because we have the ability to tap in to an unassailable peace. This is patience. Well, let's, well nobody has time for that. Let's move to kindness and goodness. Patience, just the idea, I love the way that King James translates this, long-suffering, right? I think that communicates enough, long-suffering with zip it, long-suffering and not complaining. 
Kindness and goodness, Paul gives us these kind of twin terms that really go together. That I think are just so beautifully displayed in the characteristics of Jesus. Displayed in his compassion. I think often about the woman at the well in John 4. We don't know what her story is, but many presume that this was a woman uh, who, who just kind of went from relationship to relationship to relationship. Either from an understanding that she is insecure She has no rights and privileges within the society, so she needs a man to provide for her. And so, or that she's a woman who is just drawn by her sexual appetites, and that's what has led her from man to man to man. We don't, we just simply don't know. But we see something of the kindness and goodness of Jesus in his interactions with her. He engages this woman in conversation. He talks to her. He shows her his heart for her as he opens himself up to receive from her her word. And in his kindness and in his goodness, he shows her the path of life. And this is what the Spirit does for us. That he doesn't leave us where he found us. He doesn't leave us in our waywardness. He doesn't leave us in our wranglings. He doesn't leave us in our sin. But in his compassion, he visits his kindness and his goodness upon us. And in that, he draws us to himself. And he gives us an opportunity to display those things with others as the Holy Spirit takes in our hearts increasing measure. The idea of gentleness, Jesus spoke this word in Matthew 11 and 28. In Matthew 11 and 28, he said, Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. For my yoke is easy. And my burden is light. The compassion that Jesus displayed in engaging those who are set against the cross. I want us to think and just reflect for a moment about the reality of that scene. That Jesus, over the course of his ministry, every time he engages a man or a woman or a child, he recognizes that in engaging with them and in knowing their sin and in knowing their heart, that they are a person for whom he's prepared to die. That they are a person set against him ultimately. That they are a person who has sinned against a holy God. Who has blasphemed God in their lifestyle and with their mouth. And he is preparing in himself to take upon his body the burden, the punishment, the penalty of their sin. And he's completely gentle. How many times have you engaged somebody that has has been an affront to you? They've accused you of something. They have sinned against you. They have done something wrong. And there's something that just kind of cooks inside of us, this pressure, this animosity, this antagonism. And what we want to do is to pour out our wrath upon them. To allow them to feel the full weight and displeasure of our animosity on the basis of what they've done to us. We want them to feel viscerally bodily our frustration our angst and our anger he does none of that all the people that would yell crucify he readily bid come and be loved the disciples when they gather around the table and he's washing their feet he washes judas and he washes peter and peter says listen i'm never going to bail on you i'm with you to the end In compassion and love, Jesus moves to restore him even before he fails. This is what he does for us. And this is what his spirit longs to do through us in the engagement of others. 
Paul ends his list with this idea of self-control. And and we don't need to wonder why. All we need to do is reflect back on chapter 5 and verses 19 through 21. He says, now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. But he says, for the Christian, the Holy Spirit, which takes up residence in your heart, shows in you, displays in you, evidence of self-control. So we have understanding in the middle of these things that when we find ourselves drawn to, given to the pursuit of these 15 sins or things like these, we must remind ourselves of the needfulness in us to be dependent upon God's Holy Spirit. To be dependent upon God's Holy Spirit. Now we look at this list. We look at the list of the nine, we look at the list of the 15, and the, and the temptation for many of us is to say, I see the 15, don't see the nine. Or I'm told about the 15 being true in me. Nobody's walking up and saying, you're loving, and you're kind, and you're gentle, and you're full of self-control. I'm just really struggling. And I'm really struggling with the reality of how can I even be a Christian if I don't have these things in my life? It's the same struggle that they're engaged in. But do you see the subtle mind shift? Do you see the the, the subtle necessity, rather, of a complete shift in their thinking? The Judaizers had come to town and told them over and again, you need to keep the law. You need to keep the law, you need to be perfect in keeping the law, you need to be circumcised. Everything that the law says, you need to have evident displayed in your life. Paul comes in, he says, if you try to keep the law, you're severing yourself off of Jesus. Essentially what you're saying in this is I can be righteous on my own and I don't need Jesus. But as Christians, we come into this with the same mindset. And that mindset is to say, I I, I don't want the 15 in my life. I do want the nine in my life. And so there must be something I can do to have the nine. There's got to be something that I can do. There's got to be something I can say. There's got to be some magical formula that I can do and say and and oil I can ingest or or cover myself in. There's got to be some baggy pants I can not wear. There's got to be something I can do to have the nine. Who gives us the nine? The Spirit. The Spirit gives you the nine. Paul in Romans 8, Paul in Romans 8 said it this way. Romans 8 and verse 13. He says, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if, by the power of the, everybody say spirit. If by the power of the spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. We can't put to death the 15. It is not in my ability. It's not in your ability. It's not in your, your unregenerate kid's ability to put to death the deeds of the flesh. But it is well within the power and the ability of the spirit to do so. It's well within the power and the ability of the spirit to do so. You remember last week he said, listen, 
said you need to walk with the Spirit. We are constantly bringing ourselves in submission to the Spirit. He said you need to be led by the Spirit. We need to extend our hands boldly but with humility to him and say, lead me. I cannot lead myself. I cannot make enough good decisions. All I seem to be able to make are bad, ruinous decisions for me, for my family, for everybody around me. Would you take me where I need to go? It is by the power of the Spirit we have the ability to put sin to death. John Owen said it this way. He said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. And Paul gives us in verse 24 a picture of this idea of of mortification, of putting sin to death. He says, for those who belong to Christ Jesus, for those who belong to Christ Jesus, they have crucified in the flesh with its passions and its desires. There is no such law. And, and, And for those who are in Christ Jesus, they have crucified the flesh with its passions. So we come to this understanding, okay, so there's no law. And so what he does in that is he goes to the Judaizers and he says, listen, you're all just obsessed with them following the law. Are there anything in the list of this nine that are against the law? And they say, no. Just imagine uh, for a second that you're out on Wesley Street. You're out at the intersection of our parking lot and Wesley Street. and, 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 And you have the ability to let it be where someone can turn left on a Wesley Street, which is just unheard of, right? I mean, you laugh because you know how ludicrous this example is. There are no left turns on Wesley Street. Quit trying to do it. But let's just say, for, for sake of this fanciful discussion here, you have it in your ability to allow somebody to, to experience the enjoyment of a God's grace and mercy, which would be turning left on Wesley Street. Now, I don't know what you've done in this scenario, but you've angered this person as it occurs to me. And so they turn left on Wesley Street, and they go to raise their hand, and you're like, they're going to give me this number. But all of a sudden, it's just a bobbing hand with one digit extended. And you're like, what? And so you're, 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 you're oh, mea culpa, I'm so sorry, I don't know what I've done. And, 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 and then all of a sudden, you have another opportunity for this same person, because they're in the turning lane, and now they need out. And, and so you just kind of slow down, and you're like, We're all experts at ASL driving, right? And so they go out, and, and, and again, they have this odd gesture with their hand towards you, and you just can't figure it out. What's going on? It must be a spasm. And so, and, and, and then you, you, you turn, and you begin to head to Rockwall on the feeder, and, and you're doing 45 because, y'all, they enforce that speed limit. And so you're, you're doing 45, and you see them just, rom, rom, they're blowing ahead, and all of a sudden they're on the freeway, and they're doing all these things, and, and you don't think anything of it. You turn it on 94.9, and you're like, da, 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 Jesus is a, a friend of mine. Which isn't a song they play, but you wish it was because it's so good and catchy. It is an earworm. No, not at all. Okay. And so you get up onto, onto, onto 30 and you're cruising along and you're running through your prayer lists. And you're just, you're having a private worship service there. Ten and two though. Why not, right? And so all of a sudden you come up and in the distance like a speck, you see that car. And as you get closer, you see what you believe to be a really angry looking person outside and they're, they're, they sound a little bit like the Tasmanian devil. I mean, just spinning around and all these things and as you get up closer, you can tell that the jack has fallen, that, that somehow they're throwing it down and what do you do in the middle of this? Do you extend the same gesture? No, you pull your car up behind them, uh, back, you get out, you take one of those little triangles and you set it out to, to hold off traffic. You put on a reflective vest because you're all about safety in this scenario. 
and the people that buy insurance are here uh, today. And so you go up there, and, and you've brought your jack because you have a floor jack, and it's awesome. And you say, hey, listen, can I be of assistance to you? And they say, oh, it's, and then they, 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 don't, they don't know my name, but they do know other things, and that's what they refer to me as. And I say, listen, I'm just here to serve you. Can I help you out? And they're like, fine. So I go over, and I, and I jack the car up, and I change the tire, and I put on the little, little cute donut thing. And I put it back on there, and I, you know, I blessed it, and I pour oil on their car and all these things, and they just speed off. And I'm rejoicing at the good thing I've done. I got my vest on, I grab my jack, grab my floor jack, grab my reflective thing, and I'm packing it all back in the truck, and all of a sudden, the red and blues are flashing. Now, in the city of Houston, I don't know if this is still a deal, but they used to occasionally pull you over to tell you, nice job. Why would they do that? That's terrifying. Nobody needs that, and nobody's thinking, nice job. But I lived in Houston for a while, so I'm thinking that. And so they, they drive up, and they, they come up, and they're like, sir, did you help somebody turn left on Wesley Street? And I'm like, I did. Did you help them get out of the turning lane? I'm like, pop, suspenders. I did. My best is suspenders. I did. Did you, did you help that person who left the broken jack here on the ground and littered and all these? I did, I did, I did, I did. They whip out their book and they're like, that's kindness. I'm going to write you a citation. And that's patience. I'm going to write you a citation. And that's goodness. I'm going to write you a citation. Now, what would my response be? My response would be something along the lines of, is this Dallas County? But then it would be, this is ludicrous. You see, because there's no law prohibiting these things. There's no law in our books. There's no law in any country prohibiting love. There's no law preventing peace. There's no law preventing patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. There are no laws against these things. Instead, what there is is a dependence upon God's Holy Spirit to show them. So we get into Owen's idea of be killing sin or it will be killing you. And we get into this understanding in Romans 8, 13, that we need the power of the Spirit to be at work in us, putting these things to death. It's not keeping of the law, it is keeping independence upon His Spirit. Staying in dependence upon God's Holy Spirit. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with His passions and desires. So this picture occurs. This picture occurs. Paul describes it in some sense in Colossians 2, 13 and 14. Look at what he says. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. This is how we find ourselves. I find myself impatient. I find myself unloving. I find myself full of hatred. This is what has happened in those moments. Essentially, what I'm doing is I'm going over to the cross, either actively or passively. I'm going over to the cross. I'm looking upon the cross, and I find there my impatience, and I find there my hatred. And what I do is I say, I don't want to wear patience. I don't want to wear love. 
as the Holy Spirit has dressed me. I want to wear my impatience. I want to wear my hatred. So what I'm doing in those moments is I am divesting myself of what the Holy Spirit has said is true of me. And I'm taking down from the cross the sin that he has held there and I'm putting it back on. You see, what God gives us is an opportunity to be arrayed in the splendor of the characteristics of the Holy Spirit. But what we prefer is to be dressed in the filthy rags of our sin. Because it's more effective. Because we feel like we have more control. I feel like I have greater ability. And it's really not a big deal. He has taken all of your sin. God has taken even the sin from this morning, the sin of you doubting God's love. He has taken even this morning the sin of your impatience with your kids. And if you have kids and you're here, you've been impatient, right? He has taken today your love and the absence of love in your life. And he has taken these things and he has placed them back on that cross. And by his spirit, he allows us to manifest the characteristics that are true of us. But we want there to be something we can do. Dane Ortland says it this way. He says, in the finished work of Christ on the cross, we are completely liberated from the accusing powers of the devil and our own consciences. In killing sin, we are not completing Christ's finished work. We are responding to it. Christ was killed. So that our own relative success or failure in killing sin is in no part of the formula of our adoption into God's family. Brothers and sisters, you have been arrayed in splendor. God, through the power of his Holy Spirit, has clothed you in rich, in the rich envelopment of his Holy Spirit. The splendor of God's love covers you to display the fruit of his Holy Spirit. What do we need to do? What do we need to do in the middle of these things to be crucifying the flesh? We have done it. We have aligned ourselves with Jesus. We have confessed our sin before him. We are broken and needful men and women, Lord, would you forgive me? And his spirit does the rest. Amen? Let us pray. God, we need the movement of your spirit. We need to find ourselves submitting to you in all things. Not on the basis of good things we are doing or we want to do, but solely on the basis of your goodness and your grace. God, we pray for those who are in this hearing who have yet to submit themselves to your son. Now, when they evaluate their lives, all they see are their pitfalls, are their failures. So God, I pray that you would help them to see your grace and your mercy, how you bid them come. You don't call them to yourself full and complete. You call them to yourself when they are broken, when they are lost. And you make them full and complete by the power of your spirit, through the blood of your son. God, I pray for the Christians in this room and in this hearing 
God, they're evaluating their last week, their last month, their last several years. And they feel as if you look at them and you have found them wanting. You have found them insufficient. God, I pray that you would remind them of your love. You've not called us to do the impossible, to manifest love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. But God, you have called on us to be broken, to be honest in our brokenness, and to repeatedly ally ourselves with Christ and his cross. We have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer we who live, but Christ who lives within us. And the life we now live in faith, we live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. So God, would you cause us to walk in the truthfulness of that claim in Galatians 2.20. We submit these things to you. And we ask for your continued, continued movement in our hearts and in this place. In Christ's name, amen.